Canadians were the most surprising thing for me. We are more resilient than we think we are. We are good citizens to each other. Canadians sort of took this and went, yeah, we understand. We're going to follow the rules. We're going to do the things that we need to do. There was not an awful lot of whining and complaining. I would extend that to the professionals in the provincial and territorial governments, to people in the private sector. I'm, I'm always impressed with the private sector in Canada. This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. We feature discussions about the future of the business of electricity on this podcast and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. Today's podcast is the second installment in a series of podcasts on the COVID-19 pandemic, its impact on the electricity sector, and how the future may change due to our COVID-19 experiences. Once again, this podcast was not recorded face-to-face, but using Zoom and features my conversation with Craig Oldham, the Director General at the Critical Infrastructure Directorate in the National and Cybersecurity Branch at Public Safety Canada. As you'll hear in our conversation, in addition to his policy responsibilities at Public Safety Canada, Craig also led in an operational capacity early in the pandemic at Canada's Government Operations Centre. Here is my conversation with Craig recorded in late June of 2020. Craig, thanks for joining the podcast. My pleasure. So I I thought where we'd start is kind of the timelines. I know most people started really paying attention to this in early March, particularly, you know, in in my case, the last day I was in the office was on the 12th of March. Our office itself shut down on the 16th of March. But I thought it would be interesting to get a sense from you uh, in in your uh, capacity and what you were seeing uh, at Public Safety Canada. Clearly, it wasn't March 16th that that this was on the radar of you and colleagues at Public Safety Canada. How long uh, before that was this something that was being tracked and being planned for? Well, I, I believe that the Government Operations Centre, and, and for those who are not familiar with the Government Operations Centre, it is the, um, the National Operations Centre for the government. Um, it is housed within Public Safety Canada, but it's a whole of government asset. Uh, so all the departments and agencies contribute to that strategic hub for information sharing, planning, and execution of, of government operations. And the Government Operations Center and other partners uh, were certainly watching what was going on with this emerging disease. Um, As early as sort of the end of January, there were indications of things going on. Um, The Government Operations Center was busy doing a number of different events, as it is all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And... You know, before that, that whole piece started to happen, you will recall that there was the whole evacuation of Canadians out of China. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. As this event was starting to unfold and before it became what we know of it as today as a pandemic, 
Right. Um, you know, there were there were issues, there were lockdowns in China, and the Government Operations Center working with Foreign Affairs and other departments of the, and agencies, or I should say Global Affairs Canada and other departments and agencies, were actually executing an operation to bring Canadians back from China. So they were engaged and thinking about this and working through this uh, fairly early on. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fair to say that you know, when we look at, at this particular event as it unfolded, um, I always draw an analogy between, uh, and because it's a medical thing, mm-hmm. uh, sort of a medical scenario. And, and I always look at public health agency and Health Canada as being the people responsible for managing the disease and then the other departments and agencies through the government operations center being responsible for managing the symptoms. Okay. And I think that's a good way to think about how the roles and responsibilities between the two break down. Okay. You know, um, we, in a previous uh, podcast uh, with Owen Cook from AltaLink, we talked about planning and um, and uh, preparedness for this. And uh, one of the interesting things that, that uh, he'd indicated uh, is that his company is part of the Berkshire Hathaway uh, group uh, and Bill Gates is on the board of directors of Berkshire Hathaway. Mm-hmm. So a couple of years ago um, at one of their board meetings, he raised the possibility of a pandemic. And so his company had fairly recently done an emergency preparedness exercise with that as their scenario. Was um, pandemic and the possibility of a pandemic something that that was um, uh, used as a, a scenario for uh, emergency preparedness exercises as well in, through the government of Canada? Yes, um, though not particularly recently. There are an awful lot of different threats that a government has to has to manage. So we tend to do exercises that cycle through different types of scenarios. So there was a national pandemic plan in place. Um, and there were other exercises and real operations which practice that connectivity between departments and agencies and the ability right. to respond to things. In fact, my organization last year uh, did exercises across five different provinces and territories where we specifically worked on the connectivity between the private sector and provincial and territorial emergency management organizations to build that. Of course, like every plan, um, the scenario that actually manifests was not the same as the plan, but very often with plans, what you're trying to do is make sure that everybody understands roles, responsibilities, governance, and points of connectivity. And if you have that down, you often have the agility to work through. So as we moved into the pandemic itself, this particular pandemic, we actually went through a number of planning scenarios Mm -hmm. to deal different potential problems Uh, And in a couple of cases, right to the point where we tabletopped those with federal departments and agencies. And then, of course, you know, some of these things happen. Some did not. Some in the future. But that planning uh, process into itself is excellent for identifying potential problem areas and being proactive about them. Okay, so... If I understand correctly, you're saying you were tabletopping different scenarios uh, kind of on the fly during the event. Absolutely. Because, um, you know, if you put this in sort of, I don't know, maybe a military context, the intelligence is constantly changing. 
the adversary is not following any particular rules. Right. And certainly this, pan, this virus does not follow any rules. So as we were moving through and learning more about what it is we were dealing with, then mass, uh, you know, comparing that to the resources we had available, that would drive us in particular ways. So for instance, you know, one of the big vulnerabilities is our Northern Territories, where we mm. have limited <laughs> medical capability. We have limited resources, period. Right. And one of the things that we were concerned about is a significant outbreak in the North, which would necessitate us moving people who were ill out of the North to the South and potentially further, um, you know, enhancing the spread of the disease or overwhelming healthcare systems. Mm -hmm. So we did a whole planning scenario around how do we manage with um, localized or isolated outbreaks and how could we contain that while delivering the services that we needed to deliver yet not contribute to the spread of the disease. And seemingly, uh, seemingly, yeah. yeah, seemingly successful because we, we didn't have a significant outbreak in, in the North. Um, yes. Uh, but the plan was uh, based on what happens when there is one. Right. Um, well, okay. The other that that was around controlling the movement of people, et cetera, et cetera, through the public health officer, et cetera, that, that prevented us from going to that scenario. But that's the key is to identify what are potential risks mm -hmm. and plan for them so that you can mitigate them as they emerge. And if you're lucky, you never have to pull those things out. Right. Right. And in that case, at that time, we were lucky. Now that plan will stand. Um, should we end up with something again in the fall or next year? Gotcha. Hey, you mentioned the Government Operations Center. You mentioned thinking about things from a military standpoint. I think it would be interesting to get a sense for the, for the listener what your path was to, to the role that you have now, because my, I suspect that both the Government Operations Center and the military were part of that uh, progression. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of what was that path? Or when you were a kid on the playground, did you always want to be a, a DG of, of policy in Public Safety Canada? <laughs> no, I, I definitely didn't. I mean, I, I remember asking my mother when I was five years old if I could join the Army. And I remember that because she told me no. At and five was, years old? At five years five, old. Okay, and yeah. I was very upset about that at the time. <laughs> uh, upset enough that when I was 10, I went back and asked her again, at which point she said yes. And for me, that had been a big thing. But um, I, I joined the, the Army um, pretty early in life um, and uh, served as a, as a private soldier in the infantry. And then later on ended up taking a, an officer's commission in the Armour Corps and served with uh, the Royal Canadian Dragoons and tanks and armored cars in Germany and hmm. Somalia and other places. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I'm condensing a lot, but um, I finished my military career as a squadron commander at uh, Joint Task Force 2, which is Canada's counterterrorism force. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that that was a place where I, I really moved out of the regular military way of looking at things yeah. and started to think of things in a more flexible, strategic way. I learned a lot there. I learned a lot throughout my career. I ended up being seconded to what was the Solicitor General's Department at the time. And I was there to help with uh, some work they were doing on maritime counterterrorism mm -hmm. when the new, at that time, national security policy, this was 2004, came out. Right. And that created the Government Operations Center, 
among okay. other yep. Yep. Under, under Paul Martin's government. Mm -hmm. uh, because up to that point, Canada had never had a national operations center to coordinate efforts overall. Right. Which is kind of surprising. But, mm -hmm. um, and then the deputy minister at the time, Margaret Bloodworth, um, basically made me an offer I couldn't refuse, I would say. <laughs> and she said, look, uh, you know, why don't you stay, help us set up this government operations center thing. And so I spent the next uh, considerable amount of time uh, working in and eventually leading that government operations center. And then, uh, you know, I, I moved over to the critical infrastructure directorate within national security. Uh, it's an area that interests me. And I have really enjoyed my work principally with the private sector, which mm -hmm. is, uh, I had not worked with a great deal in my career up to that point. So, I mean, it, it just sort of shows you that you never know where things are going to go. Yeah. But I did make a career out of, out of, um, you know, a door opens and me going, well, that looks kind of interesting. I'll just close my eyes and go for it. Mm -hmm. And it, it paid off for me. So let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit back to the, uh, the COVID-19 um, uh, and the approach of the government. You'd um, mentioned that, and I like the analogy that, uh, that Public Health Agency of Canada that looks after uh, or addresses the disease um, and the other departments uh, address the symptoms. How, I mean, that, that, that sounds, I mean, that's, that's, I think, an easy way to, to sort of get your head around it, but cross-departmental and cross-agency coordination uh, to, to try and bring a whole of government approach has got to be complex, and it, it had to have been complex um, as things were getting off the ground. Uh, how did that work, and, and maybe give us a sense of a little bit of the role that you played in, in some of that? Well, I wasn't involved in this uh, in an operational sense at the beginning. Um, I was involved in the sense that, you know, we were concerned about critical infrastructure resilience, both, both the digital infrastructure and the physical infrastructure. And we were concerned about supply chains mm -hmm. and what this might need for the private sector. About the 19th or so of March, um, I got asked to go over to the Government Operations Center and uh, assume responsibility for the COVID-19 operation itself, okay. uh, which would then free up the regular Director General of the Government Operations Center to manage all the other events that were ongoing at the same time. And we oh, were also Wait expected a second. You mean, you mean nothing else happened while COVID was going on? We had no, no other emergencies. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, let's, but, I'd like to come back to that later, though, because I know... Yeah. We had floods and we had uh, other emergencies. Yeah, exactly. And, and so it was a matter of, um, of allowing 18 to focus on this particular event. Okay. Um, and, and so I, you know, I made use of the, the professionals that are within the Government Operations Center, but I also brought in an awful lot of, of my own people and people who had worked with me previously at the Government Operations Center. Gotcha. So we brought in quite a large, experienced team, um, many of whom had been involved in other events like H1N1 or you oh, okay. know, yeah. in refugee operation or right. Fort McMurray fires. So it was, a, it was a team with a lot of experience in complex, big events. So uh, to your point about the complexity of it, you know, there's a couple of things I think that we have as a strength. Um, one is we have a relatively small public service and it's very, very professional. And 
that smallness means that very often you're working with people you've worked with before. So there's a familiarity there, there's a trust, um, there's a good understanding of roles and responsibilities within mm. the government, though that has to get clarified absolutely every time you do this. And, you know, a lot of it comes down to those personalities and, and how people lead. Mm-hmm. As the Director General of the Government Operations Center, I may be, <clears throat> I always kind of I joke about it sometimes and I say, you know, like, I'm responsible for this event, but I have absolutely no authorities. And, and that's true. Um, I can't tell Global Affairs or the RCMP or Transport Canada what to do, but I don't need to either. Okay. So it's really more a job where you're coordinating and facilitating. Mm-hmm. And so there's this constant interchange of information going on between all of the operation centers. Right. But in addition to that, uh, we established uh, a director general event response committee, which is a structure that I had used previously. And its focus was just with the key departments and agencies. And while there was a degree of information sharing there, what we were really doing on a daily basis is deconflicting, coordinating, and making decisions (laughs) that had to be made at that director general level. We would then identify issues that we were outside of our authorities, and we would push those up to any of a number of deputy minister committees that would then decide and give direction. Um, It wasn't necessarily that straight a line all the time. Deputy ministers would come up with things that were of concern to them, and some of it would push down to us as well. But there was this structure in place that allowed us to do that, and we would meet every day, virtually. Mm-hmm. but we met for anywhere between 30 minutes and an hour. And within that structure, we broke it out into working groups led by other DGs from other departments to deal with specific issues. Right. So for example, um, maritime traffic issues mm-hmm. led by a DG from Transport Canada, but obviously working with a number of other DGs and those working groups would report into this DG event committee and we would provide situational awareness and sort of a common operating picture all the way up to deputy ministers. Now, when you uh, dealt with uh, emergencies previously in, in your, uh, you know, in, in that capacity at, at the government operations center, and you had to pull together these sorts of groups previously, you probably pulled many of them together into the same room. Uh, was there an additional complexity that, um, people were working, a lot of people were working from home or they were working from different locations and that you you didn't have the ability to get around the table like you may have been able to do, you know, a dozen years ago when we were doing H1N1 or SARS. Uh, Did that that add complexity because the workplace was shut down basically? Well, surprisingly, I guess there's there's two parts to this. Normally, if if we were running an operation... um, let's use Syrian, the Syrian refugee operation, mm-hmm. for example. Yep. In that case, the government operations center was full to the brim of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the United Nations, uh, HCR was in there. The Red Cross was physically in there. There were representatives mm-hmm. from provinces and territories in there. Mm-hmm. So in that regard, we couldn't do that. 
And we had to maintain a lot of physical space and a lot of cleaning protocols, et cetera, within the government operations center physically. Okay. Itself. So yep. that part was harder because mm-hmm. we didn't have that lower level engagement the same way we did before. At the DG level, though, it actually didn't make much difference because to pull DGs together physically into one place, they're busy people. You were then talking about travel time, getting them into the building. We, we did that virtually before. Mm, okay. So as long as it wasn't uh, a security event that would require us to meet face-to-face, and this wasn't, um, we didn't have a great deal of difficulty with that. We didn't go with video. We just went with voice. Okay. Yep. And, you know, the products were pushed out to people uh, in advance over email. In, uh, as, it, as it pertains to director generals, it, it really wasn't any big difference. Can you talk a little bit about um, the, the process of, of identifying issues and setting priorities? That was something on the, on the private sector that, that we, we spent a fair amount of, of time on, just the, you know, the, the issue identification um, uh, and then figuring out how we move forward with those. And it's, it's not always easy. I imagine it was uh, at, at, least, <laughs> at least as complex, if not more so, for the government of Canada. Yes, uh, I think that's fair. And, you know, there are many voices that we, we listen to uh, as we're building that intelligence picture, if you like. You know, we have the feed that we're receiving from provinces and territories who all have some often common issues, but sometimes unique issues that they're dealing with. Right. And who we're dealing with in every province and territory might be different. And some provinces and territories have a more strategic view than others do. Mm-hmm. On top of that, we're dealing with private sector partners, some of whom are better organized than others, um, all of whom have unique issues. We're dealing with, obviously, our American friends. We're dealing with the international community. So all these pieces uh, come into play. Plus, we have all those experts from departments and agencies Mm -hmm. who are experts in their particular field. And it would be an illusion to think that that I and the government operations center would be able to, you know, look out and go, Oh, I see what the next emerging issue in aviation is going to be. Yeah. Um, You know, there's no way that I could anticipate based on my knowledge and experience um, what might happen with the viability of airlines in the North, Mm -hmm. which are also crucial to keeping those Northern communities functioning. Right. So, because we have these good connections, we, we take that feed, those issues that are being pushed in from departments and agencies like transport. We're trying to bring it all together and we're trying to do basically a risk assessment process based on the intelligence that we have. And we do that in a constant ongoing way. And that's what leads us to, oh, we better look at a plan for this and how we're going to manage this should it come up. Mm-hmm. So yeah, very challenging, and and you don't always get it right. But yeah, but those those relationships sounds as though the relationships and the partnerships were critical: federal, provincial, territorial, international, and then um, where where you and I intersected at least once a week uh, on on conference calls uh, through the National Cross Sector Forum. How did how did that uh, feed into the uh, the overall process and the ability for the government to understand the impacts of of COVID as it was rolling out and and to respond? How how big a role were those partnerships, whether it's the international partnerships? or, or the, the partnerships with critical infrastructure? Well, you know, um, I often say it's all about the relationships. 
Um, and I believed that, you know, whether it was in my special forces work or the work that I did in the government operations center. I mean, mm -hmm. I knew who the emergency management people were by first name basis across the country. Right. When I came into the critical infrastructure business, I did the same thing. I think you'll recall probably within my first week, I was on the phone with the heads of all the various different associations yep. to introduce myself and start to build those relationships because you don't want to do that, you know, during the middle of a crisis or right. say, ah, you don't know who I am. But I think the, the value that the National Cross Sector Forum brought to this event, um, it, people are only just beginning to appreciate just how important that was in this particular event. I mean, a lot of this event was about infrastructure resilience. Yeah. Um, and to an extent that a lot of other events aren't. You know, Fort McMurray, obviously there were lots of things about critical infrastructure, but not on a national strategic level like this. Mm -hmm. So having that feed from the private sector about what their issues were directly led to those critical functions that government and a country needs to provide. So if we're talking about food security, for example, mm -hmm. having that inside track from the various different agriculture and food production associations on, you know, here's where we are, not just with personal protective equipment, but here's where we are with our supply chain uh, in the production. Right. Here's, here's like, it was just those discussions at National Cross Sector Forum at the end of the day, um, that kind of data and information that was coming in, whether it was by survey or conversation, was making it to cabinet tables. And wow. I don't think, in my experience, that has happened very often before. In fact, I, I can't really think of any event in the dozen plus years I've been doing this kind of work where we had that level of profile for owner operators um, going on. And this didn't, of course, happen in a vacuum. No. It wasn't as own. We kind of touched on that briefly, but uh, I thought maybe we could drill down a little bit on that as well. Um, it isn't as though um, all other emergencies and all other uh, events stopped for um, three and a half months. How does that work in terms of being able to both address COVID-19, just sort of imagine somebody juggling, uh, and then having more balls thrown in uh, that you've got to juggle at the same time from uh, a government standpoint. I know we've, you know, we talk about it from within the industry stand, uh, perspective as well and the complexity, the further complexity. Um, but we did have some other uh, public emergency events that took place. Uh, how does that, how does that coordination work? Well, I, I think that's, you know, that's part of the reason why I, I went in is so that the, the other director general could focus on those emerging events and those day in, day out events. Uh, in addition, um, he looked after all the requests for assistance that came in for the long-term care facilities. Okay. allowed me to look at the bigger picture items. Um, so that, that was quite useful too. But for example, uh, you know, we have flooding every spring in this country. Mm -hmm. And the focus, it, it meant that there had to be good tight work between the two groups. Okay. Because while he would focus on flooding and what does that mean and what are we going to have to do? We had to do that within a COVID-19 environment. So, you know, are we going to be sandbagging shoulder to shoulder? Probably not. 
Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, there are all these kind of factors. And then what do we do with scarce resources? Mm -hmm. um, if we're committing the military, for example, you know, in, in some form to something that we're doing related to COVID-19, those resources are no longer available for flooding. And the other thing that happens in Canada, because it's such a big country, we can have flooding in one part of the country while we're into forest fire season in yeah. another part of the country. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, and then there's hurricanes and increasingly there are things like tornadoes. Um, plus the national security world and the threats that are there continue daily and the cyber threats. I was going to say, you mean, you mean cyber attacks just stopped during this period of time? I don't, I, uh, yeah. yeah. You wish, but I mean, in, in many ways, we were very, very lucky yeah. uh, during this event. And we continue to be, because if you think about people working from home, mm -hmm. everything is dependent on our ability to operate remotely. Yeah. And think about all the systems, be they the, the ICT and the electricity, Francis. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That running. Um, you know, uh, people who mean to do us harm could have taken advantage of that. Uh, they could have taken advantage of our Internet of Medical Things, which has mm -hmm. emerged. And, you know, these are real threats that we were also focused on throughout this event. Even if they didn't get a lot of media coverage, there's still real things that you have to prepare for and try to mitigate. Right. And the event's not over. Right. We're still, no, we're um, still. somebody on, on some news program last night said, uh, you know, in reality, we're at the beginning of the end. It's, okay. a, it's a little bit Churchill. He has that famous line that he uses, but um, it, it's a bit like that. Mm -hmm. um, we are here. We're at a pause. The country has managed to flatten the curve for now, but that doesn't mean that there won't be a uh, second wave or um, as some people are calling it resurgence mm. uh, and that, you know, we're going to have to be prepared and certainly health Canada and the public health agency and the provincial health authorities are all well aware of this and are thinking about how it is that when something pops up somewhere, we deal with that. Mm. And so I, I think this is my personal opinion that we could very much be in an environment where we have series of second waves or resurgence, but that they would be more isolated than they are now. Right. Um, and, and we will deal with those as they come and try to manage getting the economy back up and running as best we can while we wait, um, not just for a vaccine, but for an effective vaccine mm -hmm. that lasts for a period of time that we're able to distribute. So right. I, I think so there's people, a number of things that you've mentioned. We're going to have yeah. a vaccine by November. That's lovely. If you have one dose, that really means nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, then we're into a whole different supply chain problem mm -hmm. and an issue of, you know, how do we roll that out? Who gets it in what order do we have access to it ourselves within Canada? It's, it's, is another one of those immensely complicated processes that, that the government will have to go through. Right. Right. After having gone through a, a, a series of very complicated supply chain issues uh, uh, up until now, um, whether it's you know, PPEs or, or ventilators and so on. But so there's right. still one of these days we'll be dealing with the supply chain issues, hopefully with, about a vaccine.
Well, I mean, I, I think it, it leads to um, an interesting conversation that we might have in the future around um, <clears throat> how it is we need to take a look at infrastructure resilience in Canada, mm -hmm. uh, because there are some things that are, are driving change. Yeah. Um, this shift in, in the global market, uh, globalization, if you like, isolationism, mm -hmm. um, changing threats, changing economies, all of these things are things that I think are forcing us to think about how we do resilience um, differently than the, the World War I, World War II model that we, we pretty much operate under now. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, what most surprised you of the experience of the last three, three and a half months as you kind of reflect back on everything that we've gone through since March the 16th? Um, what would you say was the most surprising takeaway for you? Uh, you know, I, I think it, it's... Canadians were the most surprising thing for me. Um, we are more resilient than we think we are. Hmm. Um, we are good citizens to each other, and we're good citizens internationally. Um, Canadians sort of took this and went, yeah, we understand. We're going to follow the rules. We're going to do the things that we need to do. There was not an awful lot of whining and complaining. And I think I would extend that to the professionals in the provincial and territorial governments, to people in the private sector. I, I'm, I'm always impressed with the private sector in Canada. Um, and I'm impressed because, um, you know, I think there's always this sort of view that businesses are out for themselves. And I don't find that to be the case in the private sector in Canada. I find that most almost all private sector partners in Canada are interested in doing the right thing for Canada and Canadians and their company and kind of in that order. Mm. Um, and I'm, I'm very proud of that. Um, and I'm proud as well and, and surprised at just how agile um, the public service has been as well um, and how quickly they shifted and delivered programs and things that, that usually would have taken years to roll out. And mm. you know what? Not everything was perfect. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that. Right. But when you look at how quickly things went from, here's a problem, this is what we need to do, make it happen. And it did, despite the fact that people were working from home without the equipment that they needed. Uh, it's, it's pretty remarkable overall, mm -hmm. uh, Chief, so far. So I think that's what surprised me the most. I thought it would be bumpier. Yeah. Um, Craig, I, I have to ask you the question that I ask everybody that I bring on the podcast, and that's a question about a book, the book that either that you're reading or that you've recently read that um, you would recommend uh, to, uh, to the listener. Well, I've been reading uh, A Short History of Homo Sapiens, which um, I think probably a lot of people have read. Yep. It's Yuval Noah Haria. He's actually got three books. So there's this short history of homo sapiens and then there's this one about the future of homo sapiens mm -hmm. uh, which i'm into right now it's not all uh, sunshine by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> but and i don't necessarily agree with everything that he says but that's that's the thing about a good book is that it it makes you think and uh, so i would recommend that as a bit of a mind stretch for people who uh, who haven't read it 
Um, other than that, I principally read history. All right. Well, Craig, thanks very much. I think a bit of a mind stretch on this podcast. Appreciate the conversation. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for today's conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions and podcasts. Coming up will be additional conversations in our series of podcasts on the challenges of electricity in Canada's north, as well as more in this series on lessons learned from the COVID-19 pandemic. As always, we invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.